All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy, I'm a writer, and I don't usually say things like this, but I have never read a book more written in the 70s by a man than Jaws. I'm Mary, I'm a digital marketer, and I'm very glad that Missy told me not to read this book. Yeah, it's it wasn't worth it. <laughs> she gave me some uh some 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 good details and I was like, that's what sounds uh like a choice, a book written in choice. the 70s by a man. Yeah, some choices were made. Yeah. So Jaws is a 1974 novel by Peter Benchley and a 1975 film directed by Steven Spielberg starring Roy Schneider, Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw. Um, a lot of R's in this movie. Uh, <laughs> not Jaws. But not Jaws. And not Ross. The, the movie rating. No. No, it's a mere PG because it predates the PG-13 rating. Um, The story takes place in Amity, a New England coastal town that depends on tourism to keep its economy afloat. However, a great white shark begins eating people, primarily islanders. We'll talk about that later. uh, Prompting police chief Martin Brody, our protagonist, um, to close the beaches. However, the townspeople and the mayor demand that he reopen them because of the threat to Amity's economy. Quint, a grizzled old shark hunter, demands $10,000 to kill a shark, which is a lot of money in 1975. I think I looked it up and it was like $90,000 or something Yeah, it's a a lot of money. Um, And that's promptly ignored. Uh, After an extremely visible attack on the beach in front of tourists and islanders alike, several groups show up to hunt the shark as well as an ichthyologist named Matt Hooper, who believes the shark may be a great white after examining the body of the first victim. A tiger shark is captured and believed to be the killer, but Hooper and Brody slice it open and find no human remains inside. Hooper and Brody go out on Hooper's boat to look for the shark and find the body of Ben Gardner, a local fisherman, and a huge shark tooth that to Hooper confirms that the culprit is a great white. Uh, They petition the mayor again to close the beaches, but he refuses. And once again, someone is killed in front of numerous people on the beach. Uh, (laughs) The mayor reluctantly agrees to hire Quint and the three set out on Quint's boat, the orca, to catch the shark. The shark ends up being an enormous great white. Surprise. Um, which they managed to hit with a harpoon attached to a barrel for easier tracking. At night, Hooper and Quint exchange stories about their scars, and Quint shares that he survived the attack on the USS Indianapolis, which delivered the components for the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima during World War II. After the components were delivered, the ship was sunk by the Imperial Japanese Navy, and many of the people who survived the attack died due to exposure, dehydration, saltwater poisoning, and shark attacks. The shark returns and damages the boat as they talk, leading them to spend the rest of the night repairing it before renewing the fight in the morning. The ship's engine fails and Quint destroys the radio when when Brody tries to call for help, basically driven mad by his desire for revenge against the shark. Moby Dick. Very Moby Dick. Um, Hooper goes underwater in a cage, attempting to shoot the shark with poison, but the cage is attacked and he goes missing. The shark eats Quint and as the ship begins to sink, Brody shoves a scuba tank into its mouth before shooting the tank and exploding the shark. Hooper returns and the two of them swim back to shore using the barrels to float. (laughs) So the book is largely the same, um, with a few key differences. Uh, Brody is an islander who marries a wealthy tourist, Ellen. Ellen resents the comfortable life that she left behind, which leads to some friction in their marriage. Hooper is the younger brother of a man Ellen used to date when she was still a tourist. They cre- they reconnect and begin having an affair. Um, Brody and Hooper hate one another, and Brody becomes aware of Hooper's affair with his wife. Hooper also dies in the final conflict with the shark, with the sh- attack on the shark cage actually killing him in the book. Mm. Um, and the mayor is reluctant to close the beaches because he is deep in debt to the Irish mafia. Happens. Um, 
he i think i talked about it so i won't bother right now um so jaws obviously is a hugely influential movie it's like really important in cinematic history um so i do want to talk a little bit about the filmmaking of this movie because it also um as i think we all know has had some impacts on the world so um jaws is widely regarded as one of the best movies ever made it's really good it is really good like i hadn't seen it since i was very young and Wow, it's still, it's so good. It's so effective and mm-hmm. it uses uh, something I appreciated about it that I, do, that I think that it gets hard to watch sometimes is, is the movie. Every scene was important. Yeah. Yeah. And it used, and it used those scenes well. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. And it's- I think in a time of like, not if you like Marvel, that's fine. <laughs> My husband loves Marvel. I love some Marvel things. But like it's like almost feels like the complete opposite of Marvel mm-hmm. in that like scenes are put in there just to be cool. Whereas everything in this movie felt intentional. Despite the fact that this is a movie that's over two hours long, every it scene feel like it, it feels economical. Yeah. I like, thought that was so interesting. It's very, very purposeful. And I think that's one of the things that makes it um still enjoyable to watch what 50 years later yeah steven spielberg if you haven't heard of him this this kid's going this places kid's going places <laughs> um jaws is also considered the first blockbuster film um so we actually have jaws to thank slash blame for the marvel cinematic universe yeah. because before uh before jaws this kind of filmmaking or not this kind of filmmaking but this kind of like marketing practice around summer blockbusters didn't happen um so it was released in 1975, uh, I believe on the 4th of July weekend, to tie in with the movie, um, to over 450 screens, which was kind of unheard of at the time. And it drew tons and tons of audiences, which, thanks to its great success, basically paved the way for the summer blockbuster season as we know it today. Um, but the movie did not go off without a hitch, um, though it had a lot of cool technology created to make its unique filming style and premise possible. Those technical technological solutions came with problems, like pretty famously so. Uh, the animatronic sharks frequently did not work. Um, Richard Shaw kept fleeing to Canada for tax reasons. I am not joking. That's hilarious. Um, the actors got seasick. They almost died when one of the ships they were filming on like started to sink oh and so God. on. Like it was kind of a disaster. Um, the budget ballooned and there were like massive delays during which time they finished the screenplay. They did not have a finished screenplay when they started That's shooting. Wild. Um, it's actually kind of a miracle that the film got made at all. Uh, but one major issue, the animatronic sharks failing so frequently actually made the movie profoundly better because with most of the animatronic sharks unusable, Spielberg at the time, an inexperienced director had to get creative. I think this was his second feature film. Um, he had to get creative, and thus we got one of Jaws's most interesting features: the point of view shots from this par- from the shark's perspective. In fact, the shark is actually only on screen for four minutes of really? the entire two hour and four minute runtime. I like. I also enjoy that. It's something yeah. I enjoy about like not seeing the monster right in uh, a- the first Alien. You don't see you don't see the alien very much. Yeah, for sure, and. And like that's not uncommon with horror films to not see the monster, but I think what's particularly interesting about this one is it doesn't do it through like darkness or shadows or anything like that. It does it through putting you in the perspective of the monster. Like you become the monster when watching this movie, which we'll talk more about later in terms of with the monsters the whole time. (laughs) Well, 
<laughs> um, but despite the fact that it's only on screen for four minutes, um, its presence is felt everywhere, in part because of John Williams's iconic score. Even if you haven't seen Jaws, you know the classic dun dun. Um, exactly. You know that that signals that the shark is present. In the film, this theme is one of the one of is the audio cue of its presence when we can't see it, and when that audio cue isn't there. There's a beach scene where where it's like it appears that there's going to be a shark attack, but there's no audio cue. So, you know, whether you're thinking about it or not, this isn't really the shark Um, until later in the film when they manage to hit hit the shark with a harpoon in a barrel. The only way that we know the shark is there is because of the music. Um, Effective. Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the genre of the movie. Missy loves genre. <laughs> so the first part I have here is just that genre is fake because it is. It's just real. It's just made up categories we use to talk about things. And that's fine. Everything is made up. Um, but Nothing al- matters. Nothing matters. Everything is made up. Uh, but also genre can tell us something interesting about the goals of a story, right? A story is a story is a story. But how the story is told and with what narrative conventions changes the way that we interpret it. There are elements of lots of kinds of stories in Jaws, which I would argue is one of the things that makes it so effective. There's what I would call the principal genre of thriller, but there's also horror elements, comedy, drama, even romance, depending on how you look at some of the interactions. Shout out to Richard Dreyfuss for having great chemistry with everybody in the movie, even Richard Shaw, who apparently fucking hated him. Even the shark. Even the shark. He well, That romance was great. Well, well, I don't know if you read the quote toward the end, but yeah. we'll get there. Um... The phallus in the water. The phallus in the water. When we start to quibble about what genre something is, at least in this case, it's less about the quality of it, i.e. it's not a mark of quality to call it thriller rather than horror. Um, It's more about the goals of the story. So if I say it's a thriller and not a horror, what do I mean by that? It means that maybe the Academy will recognize it. (laughs) That's not what I mean. That was a good joke. (laughs) Um, So I would call Jaws a thriller, not because I don't find it particularly horrific, but because I don't believe its goal is to really scare us, right? Mm -hmm. It plays with suspense and exhilaration as opposed to mortal terror. Yes, people die. And yes, the main characters are at risk of death. But the tone of the movie has always felt more exciting to me than scary. You know, I I agree with that. Um, Which is not to say that if you find it deeply scary that you're wrong, only that it's it's the way that I read the intentions of the film. Yeah, there's plenty of people who wouldn't go. I think my mom included in the water after yeah. they saw that movie. Yeah. Um, thriller and horror are the two genres people are most likely to bicker about when it comes to Jaws, which is precisely why I want to steer away from them and into two other possible interpretations. Jaws as a Western and Jaws as a submarine war film. I thought this was really interesting, particularly submarine. Yeah. Uh, So this is a quote from Relocating the Western in Jaws by Matthew Malia, who writes, Although neither Wasser nor Buckland, nor indeed most writers on Jaws, cite the Western as part of the film's generic matrix, Jaws appropriates the genre's visual and linguistic grammar and specifically references classic Hollywood Westerns such as High Noon and Rio Bravo. Like many other new Hollywood films, Jaws takes the Western as a point of reference for critiquing a set of heroic male myths that were increasingly under scrutiny during the late 1960s and early to 1970s as a result of the trauma of the Vietnam War and the apparent failure of male authority as evidenced by the Watergate scandal. Moreover, through intertextual references to classical Westerns, Jaws relocates and displaces the genre's frontier landscapes and both interrogates and reaffirms romantic and heroic frontier mythologies. So... 
We'll return to the idea of critiquing heroic male myths later, but it is interesting to know, as Malia does here, that we're talking about a film that comes directly after the Vietnam War and Watergate, and about a decade after the Western film began falling out of popularity for a variety of reasons. And I'll link to an an interesting article in the show notes about that. It was just like, we don't need to talk about Westerns that deep. Yeah, I don't really care that much about Westerns. (laughs) At least, like, historically. Mm -hmm. There's plenty of things that are to still kind of westerns that i do like Mm -hmm. can i think of one no but i know they're (laughs) out there um by the point that this movie is coming out the quote-unquote west has been explored and settled the cowboy is largely out of favor we certainly can't be as racist towards indigenous people Mm -hmm. as we've been in the past so like how do westerns even exist you know in the world of the 1970s um Malia suggests that Jaws picks up the tradition responding to the dual crises of the Vietnam War, which destroyed a generation of men, and Watergate, which proved authority cannot be trusted, and the quote-unquote taming of the West through a new frontier, the ocean. And instead of racist stereotypes about indigenous people set up as villains, you get a shark. A nice, apolitical shark, right? At first I read that as apologetic. Apologetic shark. Um, Jaws is able to confront ideas of masculinity through its trio of heroes. Brody, its mild-mannered modern family man who maybe isn't the most cowboy-like. Uh, Hooper, an ultra-modern scientist. And Quint, a grizzled old sea dog on a vengeance quest <laughs> against all sharks. Um, I When we were watching this, I had a brief like, oh, like, oh, like, nope. And then as, we're, as, you, as I was reading this part, I'm like, oh, no. Nope, yeah. it's very similar. There's a Western that's kind of yeah. like a Western. I was like, yeah, this is this works. This works so well. Yeah, I was actually watching one of the videos talked about Nope and Jaws together, I think. Yeah, it fits perfectly. Yeah. Um, Shaw, I said Shaw, but I meant Quint. Shaw plays Quint, but they're the same person, I think. Um, Quint is the most clear analog to a cowboy, but his appetite for vengeance is also what undoes him. It's Brody that truly saves the day by not playing into the sort of dark cowboy thing Quint has going on, but also not taking the sort of detached scientific study angle Hooper has. Again, we'll talk more about this balance between the three heroes later, but Malia's point here is interesting. Jaws seems to take a lot of the aspects that make Westerns what they are and transpose them onto a tourist town with a shark as the enemy. And I find that a really interesting argument. Especially this whole episode is going to be about masculinity. Like we're not going to stop talking about masculinity. So just like keep that Western thing in the back of your mind because I didn't want to go Yeehaw. I didn't want to go too much into it here, but like the masculinity thing is never going away. Um so this is a quote from Jaws as a submarine movie by Robert Wilson. Uh, there are other intri- intriguing suggestions of sub-war movie conventions in Jaws. Quentin Hooper jaw about various wounds they've received in battles with sharks during the all-night party before the final battle, clearly the best character-revealing scene in the film. The mood of the occasion recalls bull sessions in war films when the cynical veteran and the hotshot recruit trade quips about each other's abilities as soldiers. Much of the humor here smacks of military joking, the kind which belittles authority and values experience. It's during this bout of bravado that Quint recounts the chilling story of the sinking of the Indianapolis by a Japanese sub after the U.S. ship had delivered the atomic bomb to Tinian. The story is not in Benchley's novel, but in the film it provides a clear justification for Quint's fierce desire for revenge against the marauding shark. It is in his mind firmly linked to the diabolic enemy sub and the voracious shark pack that actually devoured many survivors from the Indianapolis. Then the sharks did what the Japanese normally do, eliminate survivors. I... A disturbing oh, ahead, sorry. A disturbing mood settles over the party as Hooper and Brody suddenly realize that in Quint, they confront a force who is dedicated to destruction, who is as dedicated to destruction as that of the shark they hunt. 
when I was reading this, I didn't realize this was a quote. I was like, what does missing mean? Yeah. Um, <laughs> this essay is from 1977, and I have no idea what the cultural context was for the remark about what the Japanese normally do. So we're just going to slide on by that. I would assume maybe a reference to Pearl Harbor. I don't know. I it, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, their their military was pretty bad. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. I don't. I was so confused. I, I literally, I read that multiple times. I was like, Did she mean to put that? And then I read the next one. I'm like, oh, it was the quote. Yeah, that was the quote. That wasn't me saying that. Uh, anyway, Wilson makes the argument that Jaws is not a Western. Well, he doesn't really care if it's a Western or not, but he's making the argument that it is, in fact, a new take on the submarine film. If you read the Wikipedia summary for submarine films, this is a really compelling argument. Uh, sub- submarine films tend to be about a small, determined crew battling against either enemy craft or internal disputes or mechanical breakdowns using psychological tension, claustrophobia, and so on to build suspense. The enemy is often unseen, and the soundtrack echoes that through things like sonar pings, reminders of the fragility of the ship by including the hole creaking under pressure, and so on. So similarly, Jaws deals with an unseen underwater enemy who is primarily engaged with, at least in the beginning, through sound. Uh, the small crew has personal differences, personal differences exacerbated by close proximity, and a lot goes wrong. <laughs> uh, eventually, the underwater enemy is exterminated, but not without cost, right? And as Wilson points out, the film purposefully invokes World War II by adding Quint's backstory. The USS Indianapolis was, in fact, sunk by a submarine, and the aftermath of that event still haunts Quint. So what do these two possibilities tell us about genre? Well, both are very man-focused genres for once. Like when we think of the Western, we think of military films, including submarine films. We tend to think of phallus. The phallus. Um, (laughs) You don't see a lot of lady cowboys in historical Westerns. I can't think of any. I'm Um, sure there's like one. Historical Westerns, maybe. I don't. I don't know a lot of westerns. Um, I yeah. do know. I'm pretty sure that um, not the good, the bad, and the ugly, the quick and the dead, which is the Sam Raimi movie, and I think it's from the 90s, so not mm. super historical. I think has a female sharpshooter. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, so you don't see a lot of lady cowboys, and women weren't even allowed in direct combat roles in the U.S. military until 2013. I did not know that. Which, like, I am not pro-military in any sense, but 2013. <laughs> That's wild. To yeah. Me. Anyway. These stories are typically focused on men and often on, you know, quote unquote, becoming men through conflict. These stories may be proving grounds for what kind of man you are, what kind of man is deemed acceptable for society. Um, That Brody, our mild mannered, inexperienced, hydrophobic cop is the last man standing. Well, Hooper's there, but he didn't kill a shark. Um, The fact that he's the last man standing in this movie that uses elements of Western submarine films, horror drama and so on tells you a bit about what masculinity is acceptable and desirable, according to the film. Um, so as we mentioned, Jaws also revolutionized the film industry, right? With its success, despite going over budget and having such a difficult development process, the summer blockbuster was born. Uh, it's thanks to Jaws that we have these enormous franchise films every summer. So thanks for that, I guess. I mean, sometimes. 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 Um, but that's not the only effect Jaws had. Um, so this is a quote from Great White Shark as a hyper real monster conceptual contemplation on the post Jaws image by Raj Sekhar Aish. Um, I propose if Jaws was a simulacrum of the real shark, almost everything that has been presented by the media in the last 30 to 40 40 years after that is a simulacrum of that simulacrum of Jaws. Hence, the contemporary image rather than the shark in Jaws is a hyper real concept. That is, we can think back. Can we think back before Jaws, which created the widespread irrational negative image of the sharks that the global connected society recognizes them with since then? 
the hyperreal or parareal are not quote unquote non-real, but are either more than hyper or beside alongside para, the real, and the and the produced images by mass media circulated through a multitude of printed and virtual outlets of the shark are grander than the reality or they exist parallel to the reality. There are different images to different people. To some fishers and ocean-going communities, they are often just another fish or fin in the water, sometimes competitors in fishing and even prey and trophies themselves. For biologists, they are often a symbol of a healthy ecosystem. For people who associate with them, they are a symbol of beauty, strength, and vitality. But for a large section of the global society, since Jaws, they have been a symbol of terror. Can you remind me this difference of simulacra and, and um, simulation? I almost kept, yes. We're not going to talk about simulation, so don't even worry about it. Okay. Uh, so we talked a lot about simulacra in our episode on the Matrix, so I don't want to rehash that too much here. What H is suggesting here is that while the shark in Jaws was a simulacrum, a representation or image of a person or thing. So it's not okay, the thing okay, itself. Yeah. It's a representation of it. Every shark in media that came after Jaws is a further simulacrum, not of a real shark, but of the shark from Jaws. Um, so that because the image of because the media image of a shark is not a representation of a shark, but a representation of the shark from Jaws. Um, that means the image of a shark is hyper real, a representation of a thing that does not actually exist that has superseded the real object. Uh, essentially, because the image of a shark the shark in Jaws is so ubiquitous and held such power, it has replaced all other images of sharks. All sharks are now that shark, and that shark was only barely ever connected with reality in the first place. Even more importantly, that shark was portrayed as, in the words of the film, a quote-unquote eating machine. It was portrayed as bloodthirsty and dangerous, and if every shark after it is a simulacrum of the Jaws sharks, all sharks are now that shark as well. Why does that matter? Well, because hashtag not all sharks. I like this part. Not even all great white sharks. Um, so this is a this is a little bit about a video called uh, "The Shark in Jaws Did Nothing Wrong," an ecological video video essay by Trey the Explainer. So this video talks about how the marketing campaign for the film drummed up hatred and fears fear of sharks. Like people probably weren't like super excited about sharks mm-hmm. um, before this movie. Like they weren't like ooh woohoo sharks. Um, they're not a what do they call them charismatic fauna. I think is what they're called. It's like a something I learned in a biology course about um, people care about certain kinds of animals because they're cute or interesting and sharks aren't really charismatic. You know what I mean? Uh, um, yeah. Like they're not um, a grizzly bear. You know? They're, people are like, ooh, grizzly bear. Or like, ooh, ooh, a bobcat or whatever. But like sharks are swimming. <laughs> like, that skin looks like it would feel weird. Almost yeah. A taste. <laughs> well, it probably would taste weird too. So, this movie actually in the process of mar- of marketing actually like drum intentionally drummed up hatred and fear of sharks. I can't remember what it was actually referred to during the marketing campaign, but they had a name for it which is in the video. Um before the 1900s in the US, shark quote-unquote attacks were actually referred to as incidents or accidents. I think that's so crazy. Yeah, which are words that don't ascribe agency to the shark, right? It, like obviously a shark bite was not something that people were like, "Woohoo, a shark bite." Um but it was also not something that the shark was blamed for because attack suggests agency, right? Mm-hmm. The shark intentionally is attacking whereas a shark bite is like, "Well, yeah, it bit you, but like it's it doesn't seem premeditated you know what i mean whereas in jaws it's the assertion that it is there's an l like that shark is doing things sharks do not do yeah it's like i just ate and i'm gonna eat again yeah they don't they're, they're not like that um 
so a shark bite, you know, again, not something super positive, but at the same time, it doesn't ascribe agency the way that we don't call it a jellyfish attack, right? I'm going to start. Like, well, obviously, jellyfish, too, don't have the kind of mental capacity Especially. to be attacking. Um, but even so, like, it's 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 ascribing agency where there probably is no agency. Um, this or There's agency, but it's not premeditated. They're not like, I'm out to actively hurt people. Um, this video has a lot of good information about what sharks are actually like. They eat very infrequently, and they're generally calm but curious, which is pretty at odds with what happens in Jaws. Um, the attitude toward sharks led to not just a lack of conservation efforts for sharks because now people hate sh sharks so much because of Jaws, but the declaration of sharks as waste fish. This is crazy. Um, that allows people to hunt all sharks indiscriminately. That's wild. Um, there are fewer than 250 people researching sharks today, which is an overestimate that includes interns and so on. Wow. Like, there's not a lot of shark research going on. Um, Two-thirds of cartilaginous fish, sharks included, are classified as threatened, endangered, or critically endangered by human overfishing, hmm. especially after efforts in the 80s to completely eradicate sharks. That's so wild. Yeah. Like, people hate sharks, and it is all because- sharks? Yes. All sharks. Uh, because of this movie. Like, this this movie has a- on a, like unavoidable impact on the public perception of sharks. Mm -hmm. um, despite the fact that snakes, dogs, freshwater snails, crocodiles, and hippopotamuses kill more people per year, like way more than sharks. You might have five deaths in a year because of sharks. Can I ask a question? No. <laughs> snails? Yeah, freshwater snails can be quite dangerous. There's a really, it's not, I don't think it's a freshwater snail, but the cone snail is like super, super dangerous and people are always picking them up at the beach. The water, the ocean, no matter, the lakes, they are just allowing us to live here. That's wild. The freshwater snails I don't know much about, but they they kill, like like I said, sharks may kill five people a year. Obviously not great. We don't want anybody to die to a shark. But snakes are like, I can't remember the exact number, but it's in the tens of thousands. Like way more people are dying to snakes every year than sharks. But we live in terror of sharks and we're allowed to kill sharks indiscriminately because of fear relating to this movie specifically. And like, wild. yes, this is a fictional movie about a fictional shark. And we've talked before about how things are more complicated than just see message, internalize message when it comes to like, quote unquote, harmful media, which we talk about a lot in our Twilight episodes. Um, but this has had a huge impact on the public perception of sharks, which has impacts on our world. And as the video points out, this really hasn't changed. While things like Shark Week are ostensibly for shark education, that is education about sharks, not educating sharks. Um, they're ostensibly for shark education. They still use the violent branding and fear mongering in advertisements, which contributes to people viewing sharks as extremely dangerous and predatory towards humans. I mean, we do make the it's Shark Week when we have a period. <laughs> That's pretty violent. That's pretty violent. It's violent that i have to have a period it is um against me against sharks against me yeah. specifically um so like what should jaws never have been made um of course it should have that's not the point of criticism right my, my point in saying like this has had in this has had serious negative effects on the world is not to say that uh, well jaws should never have been made um 
the kind of in, this kind of information isn't meant to suggest that the movie shouldn't exist because it isn't realistic enough, but it would have been nice if, say, Hooper hadn't been spouting misinformation about sharks or if the media hadn't taken the idea of man-eater sharks and run with it or if, like, Finding Nemo wasn't still playing off of this message or any number of things were more critical of the quote-unquote reality portrayed in the movie. They needed a Jurassic Park where, like, the raptors were bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and in the end, the ra- was it the raptors saved them from the T-Rex or the T-Rex saved them from the raptors? I can't remember. Anyways, they needed the shark to save them from something. Redemption for, for yeah, sharks. Yeah, redemption for the shark. And I mean, like, we still have the Meg happening. It's like, shark movies are, and you with, watch the second one. with sharks as, like, these really terrifying villains are still happening. I mean, Sharknado, obviously. Obviously. Obviously, Sharknado. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it for the filmmaking part. You want to talk about symbolism? Don't I ever. Um, sharks represent periods. Well, (laughs) no, (laughs) it's kind of impossible to look at Jaws and just be like, ah, a story about a shark. Like it is a story about a shark, obviously, but there's something about the quality of the movie that suggests that it's not just a shark, right? Yeah. You're not going to put that much thought into every little scene. Yeah. If it's, if it's just a shark. Just a shark. Um, we talked about some potential genre connections earlier, but I want to really get into the nitty gritty of what the shark might be and some evidence for that aside from being literally just a shark. We can, we've established the shark's a shark, although it's not actually a shark because it's a simulacra. Simulacrum of a shark. Now you get into the real nitty gritty. Yeah. So this is actually a quote from the introduction to Jaws the Book by Peter Benchley. Uh, The book was published in the spring of 1974 to generally favorable reviews. A few readers and reviewers went delightfully overboard. Fidel Castro, (laughs) yes, that Fidel Castro, (laughs) Fidel Castro told an interviewer for National Public Radio that Jaws. Tiburon in its Spanish editions, I apologize for my Spanish accent, I don't speak Spanish whatsoever, um, was a marvelous metaphor about the corruption of capitalism. Other critics described it as an allegory about Watergate and a classic story of male bonding. So Benchley doesn't seem to be super impressed with the idea that his shark is anything but a shark, which sure, maybe he didn't intend that. But writers are always informed by the things they see and think about intentionally or not. Well, it sounds like he wasn't a great writer. (laughs) He wasn't the worst writer ever. Like the book wasn't irredeemable it just when i say it was a book written by a man in the 70s that's exactly what i fucking mean (laughs) um so while benchley might have not intended for the shark to represent capitalism or watergate or any such thing they could have influenced those things could have influenced him to think about exploitation or power or corruption which bleed into the work whether you want it to or not in truth we don't really care what benchley or spielberg or carl gottlieb or anybody else involved with the creation of the novel or movie we don't really care what they say about what the shark is, other than to evaluate if they achieve their, those goals. Yeah, get them out of here. Yeah, pff, get out. I don't get care out. about you. So first, let's talk about capitalism and class. What? Uh, I don't think you have to look hard <laughs> to find critique of class inequality and capitalism in Jaws. It sort of hits you over the head with it, given that while the shark, the eating machine, is the primary antagonist, the shark would not be any danger if Brody was simply allowed to close the beaches, right? The shark is not coming onto land and eating people. Mm-hmm. So if he can close the beaches, boom, movie over, right? Yeah. There's no danger from a shark in the water. But if Brody closes the beaches, the town won't make tourist money. And if the town doesn't make tourist money, the people who live there will suffer, potentially losing their health insurance, homes, etc. And that's scary. That's very scary. 
in the book, there's an extra group to blame for this. The mafia, who the mayor is deeply in debt to. Because he owes so much to the mafia, which is money he he took to use his sick wife to use, to help his sick wife, sorry. Um, he owes so much to the mafia, he has to keep the town open or risk losing, losing everything. That doesn't make his actions right, just a touch more understandable than the mayor in the film, who, as he says, also had his kids on the beach. Like, bro! Just wild. <laughs> <laughs> the mayor in the film seems willfully ignorant and downright stupid, whereas the mayor in the book at least has a reason for his behavior, right? They could have just put a sign that says shark in the water, enter if you dare. Yeah. People would have still entered. Yeah. Um, the film also has the additional complication of the fact that, as far as we can tell, the townspeople also want to keep the beaches open, yeah. despite townspeople being the primary victims of the attack. Um, so this is a quote from Pedal Pushers, Spielberg, Desica, and Dismemberment by Sean Desilet. Taking a guess on that one. Um, very likely, everyone the shark kills is an islander. The mayor does describe the first victim, Chrissy Watkins, as a summer girl, but that characterization figures into the false story that he spins to Brody in an effort to coerce Brody into retracting his report that a shark attack killed Wa- Watkins. Ooh, that was a long sentence. Um, her behavior at the beach party that opens the film seems to mark her as an islander. The little boy who dies in the second attack, Alex Kintner, is the scion of a powerful island family. The severed head of local fisherman Ben Gardner provides one of the film's memorable shocks. And the man who dies on the 4th of July attack shows an islander's patronizing superiority and accent in advising Michael and his friends how to sail their boat. The shark's locals only scruple holds even in its struggle with the triumvirate of heroes who separate themselves from the community to hunt it. Spielberg changed the novel's ending by substituting Amity native Quint for outsider Hooper as the shark's last victim. In another context, killing and eating someone may appear an odd way to express affinity with her, but Amity, quote unquote, means friendship when it means to kill. The shark's preference for the flesh of islanders is a token of its alliance with a social organization whose appetites it it excessively satirizes. So, as Desilet outlines here, almost every, or potentially every, depending on how much we believe the mayor, um, almost every victim of the shark is an islander. The shark seems uniquely motivated to kill islanders. Obviously, the shark doesn't actually care what person it's where the person it's eating is from, but Spielberg, at least, has chosen to portray the shark as eating islanders. Therefore, we can say that the shark is allied with the same consuming forces that convince the townspeople to keep the beaches open. That's the capitalism metaphor. Mm. Capitalism has such a stranglehold on us, represented by the townsfolk, that we will actively champion it even as it eats us alive. Yeah. That's it's not that the townsfolk are in favor of the shark. Like they're not like, woohoo, I love the shark. I love sharks. Um but rather that they refuse to do anything about the shark because they would lose their income, their homes, etc. I don't even think it's about greed. It's about survival. It's about, yeah, it's about survival. I think if it was the the shark, they wanted to shut it down but didn't, and the tourists were the ones that got eaten, mm-hmm. then it would be about greed. Right, exactly. And then it would be literally eating the rich. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> uh, so, I, like I said, don't even think it's about greed. It's about survival. Or as Blank says in the video, the narrative genius of Jaws, um, it, the name is blank. I didn't just like leave a gap there. Um, so the video says this movie is not a judgment about vigilante justice or the machismo male savior, though it might be charged with this. It's about survival. It's the prime factor motivating almost every character in this town, even the shark. So the shark isn't evil for evil's sake because it's a shark, right? It's a shark. It doesn't have a concept of human morality. It has no concept for good and evil. The people of Amity aren't even greedy for greedy's sake. The mayor is iffy, at least in the movie, where he doesn't have the mafia influence. But survival is key. 
the mayor won't survive as mayor without the town. The town won't survive without its people. The people won't survive without the tourists. The shark is a literalization of the forces of capitalism that prompt us to throw our bodies and entire selves in service to it, even as it eats us alive. But the shark just wants to survive, right? It doesn't care what it eats. It doesn't do this out of malice. It only does it because that's what it needs to stay alive. And staying alive is its primary goal. At least this shark. At least this shark. Um, it does eat a lot. It eats more than the average shark. But um, some people just do. Some people do. We're not shark shaming. Yeah. <laughs> this is a quote, another quote from Pedal Pushers, Spielberg, Desica, and Dismemberment by Charlotte. Charlotte? Where did I get Charlotte? Charlotte. By Sean Thessalay. Uh, Spielberg uses a similar framing during the town meeting that follows the second attack, again pressing Brody into the edge of the image. Behind him, in place of the ocean, a window looks out onto a charming Amity landscape. This time, Brody has no need to glance backward at an invisible threat. Instead, he gazes anxiously forward at the enraged citizens of Amity, whose greed renders them immune to Brody's sensible proposal to close the beaches. The commodity value of the ocean has underwritten Amity's status as the quaint tourist town we see through the window, and that commodification also gives rise to the indifference that characterizes the townspeople's attitude towards the threat that the ocean has come to represent. In this scene, Jaws offers a striking rejoinder to the conventional claims that movie monsters signify repressed social anxiety. The shark's advent may bring out the unpleasantness of Amity's citizens, but it does so just as any other problem would. This monster is not an uncanny revelation of a disavowed social truth. Its presence is simply a situation that demands reflectiveness and temporary self-sacrifice, a demand that the citizens of Amity are ill-suited to meet. The framing of this shot brings the town together with the shark not along the axis of some secret savagery, but rather in terms of the banal self-interest that makes small-town life the unpleasant reality that Jaws takes it to be. It's a kind of reality that can reduce the sublime to the quaint. So Desilet is a bit harder on the townspeople of Amity than I am, likely because the commentary we do get from them seems extremely self-serving, right? The the main point being the woman who's like, well, I own a hotel and I'm going to lose my money if we don't keep the beaches open. Um, the book is quite clear that the town will be driven into poverty if they miss a single summer's worth of tourist money. And we can trust that because unlike the movie, Brody, our primary viewpoint and also uh, is also an islander in the book. So he knows the intricacies of how the town works. But in the movie, we don't really have that context, which suggests that the townspeople are just, in fact, very greedy. They only think they can't live without tourist dollars and are willing to take the risk of short-term death, even if it's not their own, or especially if it's not their own death, over long-term discomfort. And they're only cutting off the, the ocean. Right. There's shops. Yeah. Um, they are effectively throwing people into the gears of capitalism to be ground up. <laughs> Which I think is a valid point. But when it comes to issues like this, I always want more information, right? Like, why are they willing to do that? Would things be diff different if capitalism wasn't a factor, if their needs were already provided for, right? Like, if this, like, if we assume in this town that everybody already has health care and everybody has a stable home and it's not going to be taken away from them for closing the beaches for a year, would they still be willing to throw tourists to the shark, right? Probably not. Less likely Less that likely. all of them would. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a valid point that the shark and the townspeople are in fact representative of the same thing and therefore become maybe not entirely antagonists in the case of the townspeople, but certainly obstacles, right? And interestingly, Quint, despite his revenge quest against sharks, won't hunt the shark in Amity until he's given $10,000. Yeah. Why? Well, maybe because he might die. That's fair. Yeah. Maybe because his pockets will be hurt by the beaches being closed and he wants a little security. Yeah. Who knows? But he doesn't do the right thing for the right reasons regardless, right? Um, and all those figures, including the mayor specifically, become a type of obstacle that Brody must overcome on his journey against the shark. Um, so this is a quote from Peter Biskin's Jaws Between the Teeth. 
um, who writes, the reason Quint must die is that he is too powerful, too independent of traditional social ties, too prone to excess, and he pays for it. He lacks proper respect for conventional pieties. He scandalizes Ellen Brody with his off-color humor and raunchy songs. He extorts $10,000 from the desperate town council to kill the Great White. He is nearly as dangerous to the social fabric of Amity as the shark itself. From the point of view of the film's comfortable liberalism, Quint's combination of working class toughness and bourgeois bourgeois i don't know why i can't say this word bourgeoisie it's not bourgeoisie it's bourgeois it's the um the adjective form oh bourgeois independence is alien and frightening um he is viewed as irrational and out of control authority must be restored but not by quit so it's Brody's middle class sense that's needed to save the day. He's not a polarizing figure like Quint or Hooper, but he's just flawed enough that his journey becomes interesting to us as he goes from hydrophobic out of town cop to hero of Amity, presumably. Um, Quint's ruggedness, rejection of social niceties and his evident lower class status means he can't be our hero. We'll talk more about Hooper Hooper's issues later because it's kind of hard in the movie to be like, OK, but what's wrong with Hooper? <laughs> right. Like there's nothing wrong with Hooper. We'll get into it. Um, don't worry don't even worry uh so all of that about quint leaves brody to step in right it's obvious how brody overcomes the mayor when people are eating on the beach in front of tourists the mayor has to realize that the tourist dollars are already disappearing right yeah. um he overcomes quint with the money from the mayor he overcomes the shark with the help of quentin hooper does he ever overcome the townspeople um we don't know, right? That's not something that's given to us. But it is interesting to think of what the reception to Brody, a man who is at the beginning of the film just shy of being a coward. Like, it's interesting to think of how he's going to be received now that he personally killed the shark. It makes reasonable sense that the townspeople will be grateful. But will they? Because while he's overcome all of these other obstacles to their safety, the truth at the core of the movie is still there. They wouldn't be in this position at all if they weren't dependent on tourist money to keep the town afloat. Yeah. They might be grateful to Brody for getting rid of getting them out of this specific predicament. But what about next year? What if there's <laughs> another shark? There is like three more. Movies. Yeah, there are, in fact, other sharks if you want to include the sequels. So what if there's another shark? What if there's a hurricane? What if there's a recession? How's Brody going to save them from those things, right? It'd be a good punching bag. Yeah. So maybe in the end, the shark is just one piece of the puzzle. The movie has, in one sense, a happy ending. The shark is dead. The townspeople can live their lives, etc. But if the shark can be said to represent capitalism or some aspect of capitalism, the threat is not actually over. And that's what makes it a more interesting movie, right? Yeah, they've dealt with the shark, but they have not dealt with anything that contributed to the shark being a problem. Yeah, because they they put out a huge ad, come kill this shark. And mm -hmm. like that doesn't just go away. Right. And I mean, there's gonna be plenty of people like you said the shark was killed. Ooh. But how you said the other one was the shark. like I feel like the PR for that was just bumbled. Yeah, and and I mean also just the fact that like you killed a shark. Yeah. Okay. So what about hurricanes? What about yeah? What about a recession? Things you cannot kill. Yeah, necessarily. Right. Um. But despite this being pretty effective critique, in my opinion. Uh, the movie does away with some of the class commentary from the book, which is actually kind of a bummer. I really disliked the subplot where Ellen cheats on Brody with Hooper, especially because it was written in a really icky way <laughs> that I don't want to get into for the sake of sparing everybody. Um, it's not relevant. It's Lucy just... Lucy told me it's bad. It's just icky. It's icky. It's just dumb. Uh, yeah. Um, but the tension there, the, the tension between Ellen and Brody and Hooper is really interesting. Though Hooper is a, is college educa educated in the movie as well, he doesn't have social standing over Brody the way he does in the book. The fact that Brody is from Amity and Ellen is not, plus the intrusion of multiple outsiders in the form of Hooper and the shark, makes the class commentary quite interesting. 
Uh, this is a quote from The Exorcist and Jaws by Stephen E. Bowles, um, who writes, This change in the film's ending is motivated by previous changes in the plot structure. In the book, Hooper's death cuts off the possibility of any future loose ends with Ellen when Ellen's liaison with Hooper is deleted in the film. Hooper survives. Oh, sorry. When Ellen's liaison with Hooper is deleted in the film, Hooper survives. Quint dies in both instances. His death in the book emphasizes Brody's singular triumph, i.e. the affirmation of the middle class. He dies in the film because his insatiable obsession to destroy all sharks destroys him. Brody, of course, also survives in both versions, which confirms the return to normality. As in The Exorcist, the insertions, deletions, and alterations in the plot of the film version of Jaws significantly change the emphasis of the film. The novel of Jaws is less about the menace of a great white as he terrorizes a resort community than it is about class consciousness centered around the Sheriff Brody, Ellen Brody, Matt Hooper triangle. The emphasis in the novel is on the class tensions within the triangular relationship, incorporating everything from Peyton Place to The Godfather. This class consciousness is only marginally present in the film. So, though Brody is an islander, he still represents a middle, a middle space between Quint, lower class, and Hooper, upper class. Hooper preys on Brody's life in a similar manner to the shark, taking his wife away from him, and Quint is more than happy to take the town's money and be a real asshole about it, too. Again, we have the affirmation of Brody as the middle ground. Hooper's characterization is quite different in the novel. He's intensely unlikable in the novel, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, but he's still very different from Quint, and Brody very much occupies a flawed but at least reasonable position between the two. Um, Spielberg at some point said of the novel that he was mostly rooting for the shark, and honestly, I agree. <laughs> I, As we know, I really enjoy unlikable characters, but they have to be interesting. These characters were not. I think it's really interesting that the book was received really well, and there, those changes were still made. Mm -hmm. And those changes, obviously, at this point in our lives... Um, in the history have made it the story better and the, like, the fact that he could see that was is is you know like i said he's gone places i don't i i don't um i can understand why the novel was well received it's a fun book you know like this is a mean this is a mean comparison I'm and ready. i don't mean it as meanly as it's going to sound but it reminds me like quite a bit of like the reception to like Dan Brown's books, like mm -hmm. The Da Vinci Code. Yes. Um, because it's a lot of fun, right? Yeah. The Da Vinci Code and stuff like that is a lot of fun. Is it great literature? No. Yeah. But he was able to take out the best parts of it. Yes. And add what needed to be added to make this a brilliant film. Yeah. This is it's an excellent adaptation. Um, especially it's, because yeah. it improves on the original. Yeah. But like the book itself isn't complete and utter trash. It's not poor, like necessarily poorly written or anything like that. I can see why people liked it. It, when I say it's a, like, it sounds like I'm joking when it's, when I say it's a, it's a book written by the man in the seventies. Like it sounds like I'm like being facetious. No, that's exactly what I mean. This book is rife with the things that make seventies literature by men really irritating. Um, it wrote the handbook. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> or at least followed it step by step. Yeah, it's just, like, that doesn't inherently make it a bad book. It's just, like, you got to be prepared for a book written by a man in the 70s if you're going to read Joss. Um, so let's let's get into the main theme here, let's. which is uh, masculinity and gender. Is halfway. Yeah, you know. Main theme. Um, I don't think the theme of masculinity is going to come as a shock to anybody either. <laughs> We've already mentioned it like eight times before this section. Phallus. Phallus. Um, but we're going to go deeper into it because I think there's some really compelling evidence for this movie exploring different forms of masculinity. It does strike me as somewhat unintentional, especially because it isn't always perfectly clear. If you synthesize the book version of Hooper with the film version, I think the argument would be pretty undeniable. Mm -hmm. But there's some like, it's it's a little harder with film Hooper than book Hooper. Um yeah. 
That doesn't mean that Spielberg, etc. had no idea what he was putting in there, only that it doesn't at all seem like a one-to-one metaphor style of storytelling or moralizing, which I think is one of the many factors that make the movie good. Well, when you when you have a... I'm assuming this is almost 100% created by that, men. Yes. That, that is going to ooze into it because right. toxic masculinity well, exists and... Not necessarily to- toxic, but it exists in the patriarchy. This, this to me, is a movie thinking about forms of masculinity, mm-hmm. not necessarily like toxically you know it's considering what does it mean to be a man what does it mean to be a good man and it's kind of considering these forms of masculinity against one another to find a masculinity that is acceptable Mm -hmm. um which in this case like with brody as our hero he doesn't cut he's not toxic he's not cutthroat yeah yeah he's like honestly pretty good man not a perfect man at the end of the film but like pretty good he's a hero that we can root for yeah I don't feel disgusting being like, you know, seeing him at the seeing him successful at the end of the movie. Even if you're rooting for the shark? Even well, I'm not rooting for the shark as much in the movie because mm. everybody in the movie is more likable. Mm. In the book, everybody sucked. Mm. And I was like, yeah, eat him. Eat them all. Eat them all. Um the movie not so much. I I find Hooper and Brody really likable in the movie. I agree. Um but before let's talk before we talk about men, let's talk about women. All like what four Typical. of them in this movie? Um, you have the wife, the one that's killed in uh-huh. the beginning, uh, the one that has their son, her son eaten. Mm-hmm. Mrs. Kinter, yeah, and the islander who doesn't want the town to close. I don't even remember that person. She's at the meeting, and the ladies with little wear, little to wear. <laughs> I didn't include them in my account. Well, of that's four sexist women. of you. Yeah, that's right. You um, shaming them? Yes, I am. Uh, so not a great track record, right? Considering that one of those women's primary role is to get eaten. Uh, none of them really have any lines. And two of them are, to some extent, antagonistic toward our protagonist. Um, what the mother, like, you only see the mother grieve. I assume yeah. that, that that woman is not divorced because I, it, just when it was made. No. But um, you, own, like, the, the fact that she's clearly used to be, you know, a mother's mm-hmm. fear. Because men don't care about their children as much. <laughs> um, there actually are more women in the book, but I don't know that they're better treated. There's a lesbian woman who seems wow. to exist to antagonize Brody and to be a gotcha moment for Brody to figure out Hooper is sleeping with Ellen, oh my which was kind of funny. Um, Ellen cheats on Brody with Hooper and is frankly kind of insufferable. And also just like, God, the way she's written, I can't handle it. Um, Jaws is very definitely not about women. <laughs> Even the shark is presumably a man, given how they refer to it. But the press, yeah, well, it's only Bruce outside of the movie. Yeah, but I assume that that correlates is, to yeah, gender. It was named after Spielberg's lawyer. Ah, I don't know what the reason for that was. I've met Bruce. Have you? I've oh, been, the- I've been the Universal. I thought Tram you meant ride. the lawyer. No, I <laughs> no, I meant the shark. <laughs> Gosh. Uh, no, uh, multiple times he tried to eat me on the tram ride. Wow. Yeah. It's um, gotten a lot better over the years. Yeah. The sh- is it still there? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a better animatronic now. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, even the shark is presumably a man. Um, but the presence of women can nonetheless shed some light on how the film is constructing masculinity. So this is a quote from The Jaws in the Mirror by Dan Ruby. Uh, As the film opens, Chrissy leads a young man away from the fire and goes for a naked swim while he passes out on the beach. The shark attack is filmed as a sexual attack, a substitute for the unconsummated encounter with the young man. The woman has already made love and 
Benchley's novel. Um, the shark's eye camera view watches from below as the woman s- swims acrobatically above. Then it rises up under her toward her crotch as she sh- scissor kicks vertically in the water. The camera quickly switches to the surface of the water. Here, the close-up of the woman's agonized face as the unseen shark tears her body under the water is a frightening imitation of orgasm. The cliche of huh. the equivalence of pleasure and pain used almost from the first portray- portrayal of female orgasm in film. So, listen, not to knock the 1970s in its entirety, but sometimes critics from the 70s go a bit overboard and painting everything as an orgasm <laughs> when did freud freud was like the 1900 early 1900s early 1900s okay but the, the, i'm assuming that they probably love freud though probably I feel like there's lots of sex in everybody freud. loves freud um but that, even you no um but that said there is something interesting there with regard to the fact that chrissy leads this aborted sexual encounter uh, the man, who I don't believe is named, can't keep up with her because he's drunk and he passes out on the beach as she goes out skinny dipping. They don't have sex at all because Chrissy gets eaten and he doesn't even notice, right? Yeah. Chrissy is the leader of this, but she's also the one that gets eaten. You also, at least for me at first, I knew that she gets eaten. But even when we were first watching, it, I was like, does he go in and get eaten too? Because he's the drunk one. So you assume yeah. oh, he's going to get in there. Yeah. But no. Nope. He's passed out on the beach. Um. And this is a quote from Peter Biskin's Jaws Between the Teeth. It is helpful to ask of each of each of the shark's victims, why is he or she killed and not someone else? In some instances, like the case of young Alex Kintner, there doesn't seem to be a particular reason. But the young woman is another story. In line with the film's conservative domesticity, more of which later, she is being punished for her sexual freedom and her forwardness. She invites him to follow her, both of which overturn the conventional sex roles that the film is at pains to affirm. So Biskind argues that Chrissy is being narratively punished because of the conservative attitude the film has about sex. That's a really interesting argument. Think about how later Ellen asks Brody if he wants to get drunk and fool around and he rejects her. There's a lot of graphic violence in this film and some teasing of nudity, but every attempt at sex is foiled. I think we could argue that there's some kind of demonization of sexually forward women happening here. Yeah. But I don't actually think that argument holds water for me because (laughs) as... <laughs> but <laughs> because as much as I agree that there is this weird conservative attitude towards sex, I don't think it's really about Chrissy or about Ellen. It's about the men and their responses to sex. Hmm. The man with Chrissy can barely keep up with her and passes out before she's attacked, essentially failing masculinity. His goal, according to masculine tradition, should be to protect her and to have sex with her. And he utterly fails at both. Even Brody doesn't get drunk and fool around with his wife because at that point in the story, he is not successfully embodying masculinity. So I like to me, it's less that the movie is like shaming sexually forward women and more about constructing masculinity in relation to sexuality. So I'm really glad the movie ends the way it does, because if Brody actually got a homecoming and like a kiss from Ellen or whatever, it would look a whole lot like sex is the reward for properly confirmed masculinity, which maybe it is in this movie. But the fact that we don't get that neat and tidy conclusion strengthens it for me. While I don't like the portrayal of women in this movie, to have physical affection be the reward for masculinity performed correctly would make me actively hate the portrayal of women in this movie. (laughs) So at least there's that. But I, I, I really do feel as if it's less about like demonizing sex or sexuality especially sex as initiated by women and more about looking at the response to sex mm-hmm. that these men who are failing masculinity are well, performing and, and how much of it is just of the time right how much of it is just like <clears throat> I almost said ladies which it's true the <laughs> men will like these ladies mm-hmm. um this is another cut for a cut I was reading ahead. This is another quote from The Jaws in the Mirror by Dan Ruby. Quint is also a woman hater. His dislike for women is treated as a natural counterpart of the manliness which makes him an effective shark killer. 
The cinematic sleight of hand allows the hatred of women, which runs throughout the film, to be located in a character who represents the working class, thereby displacing the responsibility for it. Quint's dislike of women can be easily documented. When the contract to hunt the shark is signed, Quint's toast is, here's to swimming with bow-legged women, a disturbing image in the context of the way Chrissy Watkins' death was filmed. Um, huh. His rough language at the dock when the three men set out, blow your ass out the window, and double entendre marks to Brody, see you get your rubbers with you, are calculated to disturb Ellen Brody, and they succeed. She says to Brody that Quint scares her and leaves the dock in tears. The diminution... Diminution... Diminution. I don't know how to say you words. Know how to talk. I know how to talk. And anyway, of her role, is, <laughs> in general, is consistent with this scene. She exists in the film only to be scared. Hmm. So it's important to note that while the movie isn't kind toward women, it's also to me doesn't seem to be suggesting that misogyny is great, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, Quint is complicated when it comes to likability. He's interesting and he's fun to watch, but I don't think anybody on God's green earth wants to actually spend more than three minutes around him. You know, I think um, what for for me was done really well with him is that they have that bonding moment and you start to actually like him and like understand him more, and then he fucks everything up and, mm-hmm. and, and like just destroys their one way of like getting help. Yep. And you're like, oh fuck. Yep this this man's masculinity and revenge quest are out of control. Yeah. Um, Quint is also the most ruggedly masculine character in the film, and he's the one that is the most outright sexist. Though he's not actively saying things like, women are terrible, am I right? His gruff actions and unrefined attitude are commentaries on both masculinity and class. He's gross because he's lower class, which is not great from a class consciousness perspective, but he's also still gross, and that's a layer of texture for Brody to respond to. Note that Brody doesn't do anything about him making Ellen uncomfortable. I don't think it's that he doesn't care. It's that Brody is not yet man enough to stand up to him, especially because he needs him, he thinks, to kill the shark. Yeah, because I feel like if he didn't care, it'd be like, that's just guys being guys. Yeah. And no, he doesn't. Locker room talk. He doesn't talk like that. He doesn't participate in that kind of conversation. He's a good father. Yeah. He's, he's a, you know, he's not like that. Right. Um, So if we can agree that women in Jaws are merely a means to an end, it's time to talk about what that end is, which is the establishment of a specific form of masculinity. This is a journey that Brody, our primary protagonist, undertakes over the course of the film, as when he begins, he's a borderline coward who's afraid of the water. And by the end, he's single-handedly killing an enormous great white shark by himself on a sinking ship. It's pretty badass. It is. Um, So this is a quote from Empire of Dreams, the science fiction and fantasy films of Steven Spielberg by Andrew M. Gordon. Uh, Spielberg and the scriptwriters make the family central to increase our sympathy with Brody, involve a family audience, and raise the issue of Brody's manhood because he is shown at first as powerless to protect either the community or his family. For example, unlike the novel, Brody and his family are present when Alex Kinter is killed. Mrs. Kintner... This is spelled two different ways. Mrs. Kintner publicly slaps Brody, and Brody's own son is attacked by the shark, but unhurt. Thus, in his struggle with the shark, Brody's manhood is at stake. His authority not only as police chief, but also as a husband and father. He is made both more sympathetic and vulnerable in the novel, as well as more heroic at the end. So I think it's purposeful that Brody is many, like, quote unquote, manly things at once. He's a police chief, a husband, and a father, and he's not doing particularly well at any of them. He's trying. Uh, he's trying. He's not in unsympathetic. He's not failing, right? But he's not, like, knocking it out of the park. Um, like, supposedly he moves to Amity because that's where one man can make a difference, which implies that he felt hindered in some way by being unable to make a difference in New York. But at the same time, if Amity is this model town, why move there? What difference are you making, my guy, if there is no crime? 
The biggest crimes we see in the movie are people being annoyed about kids karate chopping fences and that guy that's like really mad about his house or whatever. There's someone parking in front of his house. Yeah. And Brody can't even stand up to them. Like that man is in the way, like physically in the way of the frame. He can't see the beach and he can't even stand up to him. It very much reminds me of the the town's problems. Remind me of Gilmore Girls. Stars <laughs> Hollow has the same problems. <laughs> um, likewise, when his kid gets his hand injured on the swing, he kind of freaks out about it. Like not super visibly, but he says something to the effect of "I told you not to play on that." Yeah. Even though it's not a particularly grievous injury, and the kid isn't worried about it, right? He's just yeah. kind of like, "Look what I did." Um, I El- do think it's interesting though that he points out like don't play on that boat and the mom's like it's fine yeah. and then he she sees the picture and she's like oh my god get out of that boat yeah. so that's like the time when he is right he is asserting yes. and it is following through is when it's the shark yes. I guess um, that's foreshadowing is it not yes um, so Ellen in the background like calmly washes the kid's hand off like it's like it isn't a big deal it's not that he's a bad father he's just one that's a little overzealous with being like afraid of harm coming to his children which is typically what you see women portrayed as exactly now exactly which is what which i think is part of like the 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 quote-unquote failure of his masculinity right um and he doesn't seem to be a bad husband or anything but i think we're really meant to read that want to get drunk and fool around scene as a further reflection of his lack of acceptable masculinity he's got a lot on his mind and who can really blame him but given the cultural idea of man as wanting sex constantly i do think it's saying something that he refuses right like if your wife comes to you and says you want to get drunk and fool around the expectation that a man is going to say hell yeah let's go I'm already halfway there. But like, he- or something's wrong with your marriage, you must break up. If yeah. You ask Reddit. Yeah. <laughs> but like, he doesn't do that. He's, he's, that's not the place that he occupies. Yeah. But despite, you know, this, these kind of quote unquote failures of masculinity, Brody is an empathetic character. He's not painted as someone we should dislike, just so as someone who, within the context of the movie, has some growing to do. And what better thing to force you into the role of a man than the ancient story of man versus beast, right? <laughs> Um, David and Goliath. Yeah. But something I find really interesting in the movie is that there seems to be some anxiety over the role of masculinity, too. It's decidedly not celebrating machismo, or Quint would be the humor, humor, the hero, nor is it celebrating money and power as masculine, or the mayor wouldn't be so detestable, right? There does seem to be some concern over what masculinity is capable of, which we see most interestingly represented through the shark. So this is a quote from The Role of Editing and the Success of Steven Spielberg's Jaws by Kevin Reynolds, who writes, With the editing, Spielberg and Fields make a connection between male sexuality and the primal nature of the shark in its quest to satisfy its own appetite for flesh. As Chrissy completely strips naked and plunges herself into the glistening water, Fields cuts back to Tom stranded on the shore fully clothed, the notion being he has been rendered impotent. From that shot to the shot of a calm sea as Chrissy swims out in an arousing fashion, the film reinforces the lack of strong sexual activity on the part of Tom. Meanwhile, a POV shot of the shark is injected into the scene. The uninhibited movement of the camera as it follows Chrissy alerts the audience to the shark's intention to seek out and devour her. The shark as a metaphor for the dangers of sex become abundantly clear when Fields cuts from a shot of Chrissy bobbing blissfully out of the water, immediately back to the POV shot of the shark quickly advancing on her directly below her legs. Although the shark is not shown in in the sequence, a conscious editing decision on the part of Spielberg and Fields, the physical structure of a shark is somewhat phallic in appearance. Hmm. So... There are practical reasons for the point of view shots of the shark, right? There were other ways to get away from not showing from showing the shark that was like the animatronic was busted. Mm-hmm. There are other ways to get around that, such as just filming from above the water and just like watching Chrissy, Chrissy's reaction, right? 
But instead, we're put into the shark's perspective. We see the attack on Chrissy through the shark's eyes, putting us in its place. In what ways are we complicit in her destruction? In what ways do we eat her alive? Hmm. Now, obviously, not everybody who watches this movie is a straight man, right? But that doesn't mean the effect doesn't work. It's just not for every audience member. I think we can debate until the cows come home whether Spielberg intended this specific meaning. But given everything else happening in this movie with regard to masculinity, it does seem to be part of the conversation. It does. Just that shot alone. Of swimming up between her legs. Yeah. And and the guy just like, I think impotent is probably the best. Completely limp. Like literally, completely limp on the beach. Past the fuck out. But you know, he didn't die. He didn't die. So I guess win-win. Yeah. Um, So this is a quote from Empire of Dreams, the science fiction and fantasy films of Steven Spielberg by Andrew M. Gordon. Uh, Before the attack begins, its imminence is signaled by increasingly closer shots of the body and legs of the young woman seen from below from the shark's point of view. The emotions invoked in the viewer are multiple. As a heterosexual male, I read the provocative shots of her torso as sexual invitation, but I know the shark reads that as another kind of provocation, an invitation to attack. I become apprehensive, not only about the imminent attack, but also about my own male responses, which are voyeuristically indulged and simultaneously condemned by implication as shark-like and carnivorous. The shark's eye point of view, in other words is the view from the primitive ravening id from dangerous desires so i wonder if the future movies also touch on masculinity well neither spielberg nor benchley nor gottlieb mm-hmm. uh were involved in any of them yeah but so i'm curious i'd be i'm not curious enough to watch them <laughs> but i'd be curious to know maybe ask bob he soon he won't know he'll be like it's are a these shark movies about movie. masculinity no it's about a shark i want to ask him he was making fun of me. He's like, I can't believe you asked me if a shotgun would kill a shark. It'd kill anything. <laughs> kill and anything. Like, and I was like, well, this and I just like laid out the whole thing. He's like, no. <laughs> so Gordon goes a step further here and talks directly about he, a straight man, felt watching the attack on Chrissy. Like he was being implicated in her death because she is both sexually inviting when she's like teasing the man on the beach, putting her leg in the air, etc. Not just because she's naked. Like I, I want to be really clear here that like a lot of times when we're talking about like a woman being naked it's like oh well she's teasing she literally is like yeah she's she she wants to have sex with this man she's inviting him to have sex with her she does that thing where she puts her legs straight up in the air which is like also foreshadowing it looks kind of like a shark fin right um it's consensual yes despite him being wasted yeah (laughs) it's consensual in the 70s um so when it, when he says that she's like being sexually inviting, it's not just because she's naked. It's because she's, she's literally she's literally like wanting this man to have sex with her. So nothing wrong with that. No. So so this this scene makes the author Gordon feel like he is being implicated in her death because she is both sexually inviting and because positioned from the point of view of the shark, she's also food, right? She's yeah. she's to be consumed. That makes the viewer uncomfortable because they are now implicated in her death. Like mm-hmm. when you're looking through the shark's eyes and you're considering the consumption of this woman through sex, not through food, but like you're considering, you know, your enjoyment of this woman, you are you are implicated right? in her yeah, you're a predator. Um Gordon connects this to the idea of the id, which is where our instinctive impulses come from, the thing that we keep a very tight lid on, right? Now, I don't necessarily think Gordon is saying he has the urge to go around devouring women like a shark, nor do I think that desire is truly instinctive. But I do think our culture tells men that they have a certain entitlement to women and that being and that becomes a deeply held belief, whether men actually want to believe it or not. Of course, we can fight. We can all fight against societal conditioning and we don't have to be beholden to it, right? We can, in fact, leave our conditioning behind. 
mind. But this movie shoves us into the position not of the consumed, but the consumer. In what ways are we like the shark? Well, maybe it's that we feel an entitlement to Chrissy's body. Mm -hmm. And that's why I find this like there's this discomfort, I think, with masculinity in the movie as well. I think it would be easy to be like this movie is about becoming a proper man. But there's also the question of what does a proper man do? How does a proper man want? Yeah. What do they want? How do they act? And so through this point of view shot, I think it really is encouraging the male viewer to see themselves as this shark right this this mindless consumer of women's bodies Mm -hmm. it's very very interesting now whether they did it intentionally or not i don't know but that doesn't mean that that isn't there right i mean it i think it i i think that there's something to think about with the response to the shark eating her versus the shark eating a child of male child Mm -hmm. and they really tried to cover it up and kind of successfully Mm -hmm. um did cover it up because it was just a girl yep she could have been drunk, and f- and I think that's what they said. She could have drowned. Yeah, she got hit by a, a propeller. A propeller, <laughs> just you just know, smack, just ran right into it. Um, so that brings us to an important question: What's like quote unquote wrong with Hooper? If this movie is about forms of masculinity, why doesn't Hooper get to be the one to kill a shark? So I think by this point we understand why Quinn's masculinity isn't favored by the film and also why Brody has to undergo this journey, right? He's not he's not man enough at the beginning of the story. Mm-hmm. But what exactly is wrong with Hooper, right? He's not a macho guy, but he's capable of standing up for himself and what he believes. He does it repeatedly with the mayor. So, you know, why isn't he the protagonist? What's wrong with his masculinity? Well, for one thing, his approach to the shark is one of intellectual mastery. Um... Uh, When we look back at history, and also unfortunately now, um, especially during the Cold War period, being an intellectual was not really a favored thing by society. You're communist. Exactly. During the Cold War and even before then, being an academic was one of many red flags for communism, often linked with queerness. Like if you were an academic and you were queer, you were a communist 100%. Oh, 100. Now you are too. Now you are too. You're a socialist. That's, that's the first thing people go to yeah. now. And then, but they think socialism and communism is the same thing. Yeah. So. Um, now, I'm not saying that's exactly what Jaws is suggesting about Hooper, only that there is a connection between being intellectual and being deviant and unmasculine in some way. Yeah. Also, he didn't make his own money. Yes. Also that. Um, so this is another quote from Empire of Dreams by Andrew M. Gordon. Although Brody and Hooper appear sane by comparison with such characters as the mayor and Quint, they are not free of mental quirks. Brody has his phobia about the water, and Hooper is a self-proclaimed shark lover, ever since a shark nearly ate him when he was a boy. Hooper describes his boat as a floating asylum for shark fanatics. Hooper is similar to Quint, another traumatophile... Trauma- traumatophile? Tra- traumatophile. Traumatizing? Is that what it's No, like? it's... Yeah, it's trauma... It's like lover of trauma. Oh, like romanticizing trauma type of idea? Yeah. Anyway. I love trauma. He's one of those. So fascinated by sharks that he has made a career out of them. Peter Biskin claims that Hooper is, quote, more interested in shark fucking than shark hunting. He even goes so far as to offer himself as bait in the cage, shark teasing, unquote. Quint accuses Hooper of having soft hands. Some critics sense something <laughs> effeminate about Hooper. He is a, quote, curiously sexless schoolboy, unquote. He is, quote, cast in a rather feminine role, almost as a midwife in the scene where he guts a shark, unquote. Yeah. And he, quote, is threatened with rape, attacked by the shark from below, much like the woman in the opening minutes, unquote. In one scene, Hooper puts a homo- puts on a homosexual voice. As Brody and Quint bicker, Hooper calls out archly, oh, boys, I think he's back for his noon feed. Oh, my God. So I don't think the film is deliberately trying to code Hooper as gay. 
But there is something go- to this, in my opinion. Like, maybe it's Richard Dreyfuss's chemistry with everybody on screen, <laughs> but his relationships with Quentin Brody are really interesting to watch. Like, if you told me they all explored each other's bodies that night on the on the ship, I, I would fucking believe you. Listen, when we were going through it with his name, Clint, all of his Quint. stuff, Quint, I was like, is, is he a repressed gay? And the part when they, like, put their bare legs on the table and yeah. cross them i'm like yeah what's was, happening here like and just like like the the hatred towards women feeling but like still sexualizing them yeah. like feeling like you have to perform that so that was my first thought i was like are they and then i was like no i don't think that's what they're trying to say but but yeah i i would not i would not be surprised like yeah that's the thing to me is like red richard dreyfus truly has chemistry with everyone's everybody on screen it's very good robert shaw fucking hated him like <laughs> absolutely so funny absolutely hated him i think because richard dreyfus was like getting a lot of praise um for some role that he was in and shaw was jealous or something i don't know but um he still has chemistry with shaw and he has lots of chemistry with brody as well like I don't know what it is about Richard Dreyfus in this movie, but his he's just like every character he's interacting with is just like, oh, I could see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the Biskin quotes here, the one about shark fucking, I think it's pretty hyperbolic, but it is interesting, right? There's nothing about Hooper that strikes me as particularly feminine, but I do wonder if his construction in the 70s might have read diff- differently to those that's, audiences. That's what I think. I think now it reads diff- differently than it does. He's just a dude. Time to us but maybe that read differently in the 70s and like now it's more common for everyone to go to college as opposed to back then it was and he is rich Mm -hmm. mostly the rich to go to college because it wasn't deemed as necessary right and and like to be fair like yes his job is really important but is it necessary for like a typical person's life no it's not he can do it because he has money yeah so this construction of Hooper is quite different from the book where he is instantly attractive to all of the women in Amity <laughs> and he sleeps with Ellen. He's also really insufferable in the book. Like all the characters in the book are insufferable, but him especially. Um, so there's a further element to making him unpalatable there in the book. But the movie takes a very different tactic by making him this really likable, in my opinion, academic. I don't entirely know what's meant by that, but I do think it's a compelling argument. And also like he is kind of a 70s babe. I agree. Like, 100. Like, definitely a 70s babe, but kind of a 70s babe. So, you know. Another quote here from Empire of Dreams by Andrew M. Gordon. Uh, the homosexual undertones in the portrayal of Hooper may serve as a way of deflecting suspicion from the passive Brody. Films about male comrades or male bonding must also defend against the suggestion of the homoerotic. At first, Brody and Hooper appear to be best buddies. But once they are aboard Quint's boat, Brody becomes, quote, the domesticated husband excluded from a latent love affair between Quint and Hooper, unquote. If we conceive of Brody and Hooper as, a, as symbolic brothers, then on Quint's boat, they become his opponents and rivals for his love. They are reunited only after Quint dies. Quint, who wants total control, initially sees Hooper as a threat. Quint plays tyrannical, bullying father to Hooper's rebellious teenage son. In another sense, if Quint is a schoolyard bully, then Hooper is class clown, mocking Quint and mugging behind his back. Brody, the landlubber, Quint treats with paternal contempt. Again, I'm not entirely sure this is what is meant, but it's a compelling argument. Mm-hmm. It, it is true that Brody is perpetually on the outside of whatever the fuck is happening between Quint and Hooper. And even if Quint doesn't like either of them, he certainly has more camaraderie with Hooper than with Brody. However, I disagree that the feeling because between Brody and, Ho- and Hooper is motherly because, like, that ending. The fucking. I don't know, man. <laughs> that ending is, like, kind of romantic. 
James Bond watched it and was like, but what if they kissed? And then they remade it. Yeah. In the last movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really agree that they are in competition for Quint's love because I don't think Brody is even a contender there. Yeah. Um, he doesn't even seem particularly motivated to appeal to Quint at all. Like, Brody has no interest in appealing to Quint. Quint is just a means to an end, whereas Hooper is an actual ally. Um, the impo- ally. <laughs> That's Hooper. Um, actually, I, Hooper's not an ally because Hooper's queer. <laughs> can't be queer you heard it you heard it here first they're all queer yeah the shark even the shark especially the shark especially the shark um the bisexual queen (laughs) bisexual icon shark from jaws takes women men (laughs) dogs fish i yeah presumably um the important thing here is not that you could you could potentially ship Hooper with Brody or Quint, but rather that you have these interesting allegiances of masculinity. Neither Quint nor Hooper's masculinity fits the standard desired by the film, and they are opposite poles to the center Brody is trying to achieve. It like it doesn't really matter if you can ship Hooper with anybody, right? Like that's not actually interest. I mean, it's interesting to me, but that's not ent- actually like interesting political commentary. How much fan fiction do you think there is? A lot. Okay. Well, okay, okay. On Archive of Our Own, there's not a ton, but like this is an old it's ass old, movie. Yeah. So um and in fact it's it did seem to be primarily shipping Hooper with people. Uh-huh. Which okay. you know It's fair. Yeah. Um I looked it up after the the scene where they like put their legs over one another. Yeah. So I was like, what's happening here? Um so yeah, it's it's more interesting that Quint and Hooper's masculinity are these like op- opposing poles mm-hmm. um that Brody is in the center of. Yeah. There's also the idea that both Quint and Hooper represent phys- uh, different forms of domination, mm-hmm. with Quint's being aggressive and physical versus Hooper's being more distant and analytical. Again, I think that's a compelling argument. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth for me is that I'm not 100% convinced by any of these takes on Hooper. I think there's an in- there are, they are interesting arguments, but I'm not completely on board with any of them, even as I think that this next and final thing hits the nail right on the head for me. Um, I think this is right, but I don't believe it. Well, I was really struggling. The The whole reason I have this so what's wrong with Hooper section is because I don't get it. I don't get what's wrong with Hooper. But I also think that maybe this is contextual, right? I, think I 100% I, agree. I think I'm missing the 1975 context of what Hooper meant to people then. And I'm looking at it through my 2023 eyes. And I think that the realization that it's not his own money was supposed to be the trigger for people. Oh. Oh, I, I see. see. Yeah. But... It didn't land for me. Yeah. Because I'm, you know, we're gonna live in a different time. 50 years removed from this movie or whatever. Yeah. Um, we were just babies. We weren't even born. We weren't even born. We weren't even a twinkle in somebody's eye yet. My mom was 13 years old. I don't know how mom, how mom my old was. <laughs> I can't ever remember when she was born. <laughs> my mom would have just turned 13. Um, so despite the fact that I don't, I can't quite get on board with hooper's like failed masculinity or his like incorrect masculinity um i think this next argument really hits the nail on the head so in jaws the individuation of martin brody um film analyst on youtube again that's the name given that sounds like a placeholder but the the title of the youtube channel is film analyst um (laughs) so film analyst on youtube discusses uh his interpretation that the shark represents brody's shadow self a Jungian idea about the self that we try to suppress you can learn more about that on our venom episode you can learn a lot about young from all of our episodes it's true we're always talking about young and who's the other one we're always Foucault, Foucault, baudrillard yeah those are Deleuze. Deleuze. That's the one I'm thinking of. <laughs> Can I ever keep any of them straight? No. Uh, Baudrillard is simulacra. Deleuze is becoming. Beca- that's why. Yeah. Foucault is prison. 
and heterotopias and young is shadow self collective unconscious that kind of stuff yeah um, you're smart <laughs> i could just look it up i read this stuff over and over you again you do read it i do know shadow work i guess yeah yeah um so this idea of the shadow self um, in this case refers to aggression. Brody, a modern man, doesn't want to be outwardly aggressive, right? He's this is this is the 70s. We're coming off of like post the 60s when we were rethinking, you know, gender relations and that kind of stuff. Um, he is a modern man who doesn't want to be like, you know, macho man, right? Um, but this hesitation to be aggressive is also holding him back from doing what his community needs. Um, so film analyst argues that, quote, Brody's fear of the water betrays a deep insecurity with his aggression, which is eventually manifested in the shark that stalks his town. I I just want to point out that um, if he didn't say a few times he was afraid of water, I would have never guessed that man was afraid of water. <laughs> <laughs> right out there. I understand like they're like he's got to save the, the town that comes first, blah, blah, blah. But it really didn't feel yeah. like he was like conquering any fear. Yeah. Um, so according to film analysts, the shark is a specific issue for Brody because it represents this repressed aggression. So the journey through the movie is not just him trying to save the town or defeat capitalism or whatever, but him trying to free himself from the stalking shadow of his repressed aggression. Think of the fact that the, the shark goes after his child. Yeah. Right. Uh, it doesn't hurt his child, but it goes after him. That's very interesting. As the video points out, every time Brody starts approaching a new level of growth or closeness to either Quint or Hooper's position or security in their masculinity, the shark appears to test him. Hmm. Like, he's starting to get more comfortable on the boat. He's out there chumming, right? He's... um doing the dirty work getting his getting his hands dirty literally but so but in the previous scene he was covering his mouth because the 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 smell of the chum was too much right yeah. and then a, a little more happens and he goes back out to chum again he's no longer covering his mouth he's not staring at the water he's smoking a cigarette casually and that's when he he makes like a snarky comment and then the shark appears behind him right he's literally yeah. reached a new level of comfort with his fear and here comes his aggression to yeah. rise up out of the water and scare him. Uh, I gotta say, the next hot porn, Jaws 2, Chum Again. <laughs> oh my you god. You said that and I was like, oh, that's the second one. I was like, wait, no. That's the porn. <laughs> chum Again. Oh my god. Um... What film analysts ultimately suggest is that it isn't just that Brody has to become more aggressive, right? Because that would not be a super great journey for him no. um although that is part of it is that he has to find a sort of masculinity and aggression that sits between the extremes represented by hooper and quint um so in the video he says uh, up to this point we can always count on two things brody won't go in the water and the shark won't come out but now the shark has crossed the barrier between the conscious and the unconscious and now brody is sinking into the deep in this last moment when all is almost lost brody must integrate the shark so this is referring to the end of the film where the ship is sinking. The sea represents the unconscious and the ship, the conscious world, which the shark has breached by throwing itself onto the deck and destroying it. Brody has no choice but to deal with what he's been repressing because it is literally staring him in the face. And if he doesn't deal with it, he will die. Literally. Literally. Um, another quote from the same video. But what does Brody need from the shark? If the shark, with its rampage of death and destruction, represents the negative side of aggression, then the fight for the preservation of life represents the positive. With the combination of Quint's rifle and Hooper's air tank, Brody finally combines the opposites and gains the access to the positive form of aggression. Ultimately, he conquers his stalking shadow by taking it into himself. 
So in the end, it's not that Brody has to become as aggressive as the shark to be a quote unquote real man, right? Mm -hmm. There are other purposes to aggression or masculinity, which is more how I think of it. Brody has thus far failed to protect his community and family from the shark because of his fear and the aggression he's trying to repress. Hooper and Quint are not necessarily positive alternatives either. But when Brody synthesizes their extremes by using both the analytical and the aggressive represented by the scuba tank and the gun, he ultimately defeats the shark. The answer to this repressed aggression is not to just become it nor to ignore it, but to reinterpret it and blend it into something useful, which the video talks about as being the desire to protect his community. Because protection is can be a positive male, quote unquote, characteristic, you know, like associated with masculinity. It can also be damaging. Yes. Right. But we're talking about the desire to like care for your community through protection, which is itself not inherently a bad thing. Mm hmm. He's protecting men, too. Yeah. Um, Denying and running from his shadow self in the form of the shark doesn't work. In fact, it actively causes harm, (laughs) right? You can't deal with darkness by ignoring it. So Brody ultimately has to take that aggression that he's running from into into himself and use it in a positive fashion. I'm going to bring this up with my therapist because we talked about shadow work. (laughs) Um, No, I have way too much else to talk to her about. Yeah to talk about jaws um yeah so that like that i think for me really despite the fact that i have trouble with the characterization of hooper as being like not acceptably masculine Mm -hmm. that idea of brody synthesizing the two of them represented by the fact that he destroys the shark with um things from each the gun and the tank really i think really made the made a good point there like that really helped me understand the journey that he undergoes over the movie um that's all I have. Do you anything else to say about Jaws? The only thing I have left is as we're going to this end part, I'm curious if you, obviously we can't get into it because I'm sure it would be a long conversation, but did you read anything about this in conversation with the Odyssey? Because it seems like the similar type of like journey, but it doesn't seem like the same type of man. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, so I think it definitely fits into the hero's journey. Um, I didn't analyze it through that lens, but I think well, you don't like to. I hate. I hate. I hate <laughs> something it. you don't like to. You it's just... <laughs> it gets irritating. That's why I said specifically the Odyssey, though. Yeah, I think that there's probably. I think that there is probably intentional, and it's definitely invoking Moby Dick, which we yeah only sure. briefly mentioned. Um, Quint is just Ahab. Uh, yes, but um, I think that there's definitely an element of the hero's journey that it's following but i also think that it does something really interesting in that it cuts off before the end yeah because what because he in the end he can't he doesn't get to go home to his celebration right It, it entirely removes the homecoming aspect of um of the hero's journey and the odyssey which i think is another thing that makes the movie really compelling Mm -hmm. i I love the fact that the movie doesn't end with a homecoming it ends with the journey back but by stopping early, it's much more interesting. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think that's what really makes it one of the elements that make it a really compelling movie, even if it is like the thing with the hero's journey is that like the hero's journey is not bad. Um, it's just like if you don't play with it, then and you just follow it letter by letter, then you end up with a like very boringly predictable story. Mm-hmm. This doesn't do that, even though it has the elements of um of the hero's journey within it. It again, you know, we talked about this on our magic mic episode. <laughs> like 
when you play with that form, you get something way more interesting than if you just like followed it letter, followed it to the letter. Yeah, you, I, you, you can't watch Jaws and be like, okay, here's this challenge, here's this challenge, right. and here's this challenge. It's all really just here's one. the goddess. Here's yeah. The, yeah, it's always just like one. Although I would have loved for them to turn into pigs. That'd be hilarious. Um, <laughs> it it kind of seems like one challenge, and the man that I mean, what Odysseus sucks. Yes, the whole but, time. But Odysseus didn't suck in context. I suppose he you was are correct. He was yeah. the ideal man, according yeah. to Greek tradition. It's just interesting because I think exactly what you're saying. They played with it, and that was like they needed to because that did that did make it removed enough mm-hmm. where it still kind of follows it, but it is questioning it almost. If he had the home, if the homecoming scene happened, I think it would have made the movie so much less interesting because you would have had the reward of the kiss. Mm-hmm. You would have, and the implication of sex. I would have accepted them um, making him move a bed. That's really heavy. <laughs> I would have accepted that. Yeah, um, shooting the arrow <laughs> through all the axes. So, yeah, I would accept just that. out of nowhere. <laughs> Maybe if, if uh, what's his name, Quint was the was the hero. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it. D- there are elements of the hero's journey there which connect it to the Odyssey. But I think that it it ends before the um the homecoming and and that makes it more interesting and like presumably you don't have to believe that he's going to come home to celebration yeah they could still blame him for plenty of things exactly exactly and they could say you're lying where's the proof right it's fucking blown up yeah yeah for sure and then there's another shark because there's a jaws too chum again chum again (laughs) do you have anything else to say about jaws no that's it that's it. It's a good fucking movie. It is a good movie. It holds up. And I was writing this outline. I'm like, this is a good fucking outline. This is a good it outline. Is. <laughs> it is. I just, uh, I was, I had, like I said, I hadn't seen it in a really long time. So I wasn't expecting to like be like, oh my God, that was so good. Because a lot of older movies, I don't, it's not that I dislike older movies. It's just that they're fine. There, mm-hmm. There's newer versions of it. But this, this is just really good. I don't think that there's, I can't, at least off the top of my head, think of any version of Jaws that is better than Jaws. The Meg. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I can't either. Um, it's really good. There are certainly other monster movies and other, you know, thrillers of this kind, Let but I, I don't know of a, of a Jaws that is better than Jaws. Movies similar to Jaws. Let's just... My last thing I googled was freshwater snail. <laughs> Did you learn all about how deadly freshwater snails are? I just wanted are? to know what it looked like. Great white, the reef, into the deep, into the deep shark bait. I mean, there's really... I think this is... You'd have to get probably further into it. Yeah, it sounds like it's just giving you shark movies. Yeah, this is just... What movie is like shark? Oh, Nope. Nope, yeah. yeah. And I think Nope in being a movie about Hollywood, essentially, is also doing something interesting with yeah. that monster formula. Yes. Um, That's probably the closest. At least it's coming to mind. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Jaws. It's a good movie. We really bit our teeth into that one. <laughs> Sunk our teeth into that. <laughs> um, so that's it for this episode, which came in at... An easy hour and a half, despite really this good. fucking outline being like twenty-two pages long. The a lot of it was quotes. It was um, also the uh, the the outline, which you can get for five dollars on Patreon, is like thirty-two pages long. So you can see how much shit I cut out. 
And all of it was about phallusis and castration anxiety. Um, so if that sounds interesting. I, I There's only so many times I'm willing to use the word phallus in an episode. There was one episode where we just wouldn't stop saying phallus, but I can't remember what it was. I mean, we said it quite a bit this time. It was more. I, I, it. I, I wish I could remember what episode it was, but we talked a lot about phalluses in one of them. Anyway, <laughs> um, you can find our episodes online at fakegirlscast.com. Um, some previous episodes that might be interesting to you based on what we talked about here. Uh, Venom. Talking a lot about the shadow self, uh, the matrix, talking about simulacra. Yeah. Um, the uh, now I'm like worried that I got the simulacra definition wrong. I'm sure you're fine, but I did look it up while I was writing it, so maybe the definition changed Someone while I wasn't can looking. You no, know. so <laughs> maybe it changed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, episode on Twilight to talk about. Just always good. We need to finish that. I know you don't want to. Nobody's <laughs> voted for it. <laughs> I keep putting I it wanna, up for a vote. I haven't, oh, I haven't seen any of the movies, really. But uh, that last one. You've got to see Renesmee. I know, there's, I know there's some like iconic scenes that I have seen that I'm like, I got to see this. Um, we saw the most important scenes, which are Bella, look, a worm. <laughs> and where the hell you been, Loka? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, there's another one I was going to mention, but I forgot what it was. Oh, Magic Mike. Uh, yeah. Um, thank you and to Odyssey. Em- and the... Oh, yeah, we did yeah, an Odyssey, Odyssey episode, didn't we? Yeah. Um, thank you to Emily for helping out with our em- our Emily <laughs> with our episode transcripts. Um, if you like this episode and you want to talk more about things like this, uh, consider joining our Discord. All you have to do is shoot me an email, contact at fakeygirlscast.com, and I will happily send you an invite. Next time, we're going to talk about Barbie. Should we make that two episodes? Barbie? Yeah, because I was just thinking about all the stuff. You said there's so much stuff to write about, and we always have long conversations about it. Let's see. We're going to do one episode for sure on Barbie. Maybe a second one, but we'll see how it looks. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the, like, resources I have are going to say the same things over and over again. I guess that's true. Um. I just know there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. And like half of it is going to be you saying, I liked the movie. Yeah. Ha- I'm just going to give a blanket at the beginning <laughs> of the movie. I liked it. Okay. I enjoy It's a good movie. I fucking love that movie. I really, I really, really like it. It was a lot of fun. Well, I mean, we just got to remind people of like encouraging things we love to do better. Yeah. That's like literally what we want to do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's it. All right. Catch on the flip side where hopefully there's no sharks, but don't kill them. Woo! <laughs>